Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Natalia Petrozella, the author of Fit Nation The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession. This is her second book. She's a professor of history at the New School, and she hosts the podcast. Welcome to your fantasy, which we will cover at the end of this, because I do have questions about that. Uh, Doctor, I'm so glad you're here after following all your work on Twitter for all these years. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me and Happy New Year. Thank you. You too. Um, Before we start our interview, I want to invite our listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. When I get ready for a run, I don't just put on some sneakers and go. I block off time with my wife. I put on clothes that are entirely too expensive. I wear special socks. I start an app that tracks my route and my heartbeat and then try to build on my last performance. I also make sure that I'm keeping my training for hockey in mind, which is a mid-level beer league and nothing more than that and very much mid-level. We also have special jerseys and gear for that, even though we have no business wearing those things at that level of hockey. Um, Dr. Petrozella, what culture am I participating in when I do all of that? Is this about exercise? Or something this, more. Well, you are truly a modern man. And I have to say, as a scholar of fitness culture, but also a hockey mom, I really appreciate your whole uh, your whole like depiction there. Um, you are participating in fitness culture, and you know, you ask a really good kind of leading question, which is of course, this is in the most concrete way about exercise, but it's also about selfhood and it's about community and it's about productivity and it's about consumption too. So it's about kind of all of these things, which I think are aspects of modern life and really come together in the various workout pursuits that we have. And the last thing I'll say there, and maybe we'll get into it more in our conversation, but I think it's interesting that you both identified a kind of sports pursuit and a fitness pursuit. And obviously there are big intersections there, but for a lot of history, those things existed really far apart from one another. When did you realize that there was Um, a history to this because it's really easy to get like fully engaged in the pop culture aspect of this, which I have done at many Mm -hmm. different levels. But when did you realize that there's a story to be told here? Yeah, good question. So, you know, I don't know if like there's some weird way my brain is wired, but like my brain is wired to look at anything and everything as how did we get here? (laughs) Like, I want to know that. And I've also always just been really interested in asking that question of kind of everyday life. So like I'm the person in the grocery store that's like, when did we start having organic food? (laughs) Not just like, what do I want for dinner? So maybe I'm a weirdo and I've always kind of thought that way. But I will say that it was really like when I was doing the research for my first book, Classroom Wars, which in some ways seems really different. It's a, in many ways, a policy history. It's about education, which is maybe something we think of more obviously of having a history. But I was working on that and doing a really pretty focused study of California politics in the 60s and 70s. And of course, that's such an important era where, you know, lots of different kind of wellness practices come about. So I kind of had my eye on that. I also, as I mentioned, I'm like this total gym rat. And so I would spend, time outside of work, working out, eventually teaching fitness. And it's just not my nature not to ask, how did we get here? So, So, um, yeah. (laughs) So I want to ask though. So I was shocked to read in your book at one time in your life, you hated physical fitness, which is, which is a shock to people who follow your Twitter account, because you're often talking about participating and teaching fitness activities. I have a, yeah, go ahead. Well, well yeah. So, I, I mean, how did your background as both a fitness instructor and a professor lend itself to doing this book? And I guess first, give us the history of your relationship with fitness. 
Yeah, I'll give you the concise version, but I have what a friend called adult onset athleticism, <laughs> which every time I use that term, people are like, oh my God, me too. And I think that it's, you know, perhaps a trans historical thing that has always existed, but I actually think it really is something that um, exists kind of in this moment when I'm alive, because in the scope of my lifetime, kind of fitness culture has really grown. But the long and the short of it is, you know, when I was a kid, I was really intimidated um, and really alienated by the Active, the physical activities available to me, which were basically like PE, organized sports and dance. I'm 44. So that's like in the 80s and, and 90s. And all of it was just like, for me, an opportunity for humiliation. Like, you know, I, most kids either wouldn't think about PE or it would be kind of fun or it would be annoying. I'd be like stressing all day. Just sitting there Not dreading that it's coming dreading it, not even just the activity itself. But one thing I talk about in the book, which is kind of a weird detail, but I think gives a sense of the depth of my anxiety. In high school, there were these wooden bleachers, like, you know, in a basketball gym that they close up and like push towards the wall. And sometimes the teacher would just be like, okay, kids, everybody get up on the top of the bleachers and I'll give you the instructions for the activity. I was so physically weak that I couldn't like pull myself up. And so I would dread all day, will the bleachers be closed? Will I be able to get up? Will I make a fool of myself? So I won't give you like the real time story since like 1995, but basically what happened is I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I um, found out that at my big public school, you could do a quote unquote independent study in PE. And no one had ever asked about that, but they said you could either do um, personal training, which my parents said that's for rich people or group fitness, which I didn't really know what it was, but um, we belong to a Jewish community center and that was included. And so the long story short is I walked into this step aerobics class. I had no idea what it was, but it had to be better than PE. And very quickly, I'm like, oh my God, like this is amazing. Like, I can yeah. move and I feel great in my body and it's exercise and it's awesome. But this is not anything that had been kind of presented to me before. And so then the story after that is basically like, I very much continued go on my path of being this like super bookish sort of dorky kid that was just really into school. But I had like this funny other life that I was like, in another life, I'd be an aerobics instructor. And then that was kind of funny because I think now we think of like, oh, a soul cycle instructor, or a, my guru yoga teacher. There is a kind of cultural prestige to it. Back then, it's like, what is this Ivy League girl like want to be an aerobics instructor? <laughs> and of course, there's a lot of snobbery in that. Yeah. But um. Anyway, I so I always sort of had those two paths in my life and more recently, obviously around this book, I um, decided I wanted to bring them together. And it started honestly, not as a book research project, but I was teaching fitness at this fancy gym in New York, Equinox, which is like in a lot of big cities and suburbs. And I was really uh, put off by the kind of exercise inequality that I saw. And I ended up start co-founding a non, like a basically a civic engagement program through the university and in partnership with schools to do kind of more innovative stuff in PE class somewhere I never thought I'd willingly go back yeah, to. Right. And so it started with like that activism and then evolved into this historical research project. So cool. And I have to say the book is so diligent. Uh, I, from what I've gotten through so far, it's really diligently researched and really well done. So I love Thank it. Thank you. Um, uh, before we get to 1893 and this guy, Eugene Sandow, is that how I say his name? Yeah. Um, yeah. How far back can we go in cataloging people's ideas towards exercise. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that a lot of uh, people who write about this do, and I respect it, although it's not my approach, is they take this kind of like long view of humanity. And it's like, let's go back to hunters and gatherers and look at the way the body was engineered to run. And that's super interesting to me, as is another common starting point, which is starting in classical Greece and looking at the way that um, they thought about exercise as a kind of a nobling part of selfhood. But for me, I said, you know what? I want to do something different here. I want to look at this history in the United States and took a much shorter time span of about 140 years or so um, to say, well, let's see how this was like lived and experienced because you can't do that in that granular kind of dense way if you're looking at thousands and thousands mm -hmm. of years. So for me, I mean, I could have picked a bunch of different uh, starting points, but for me, I started in 1893 
at the World's Fair um, in Chicago, where you had these strong men uh, posing on stage and like really being attractions that people went to see. Not, I want to look like you. How'd you get those abs? But like, look at that weirdo who works oh. out. And I I started there because this, at that point, yes, pe- people were lifting weights and exercising, but it really was um, what I call a strange subculture, a kind of preoccupation I mean, you, of a select. This chapter literally when sweating was strange. Yeah. And of course, it's a little bit provocative because people sweat doing a lot of things. But um, but I wanted to start there because it was so clearly an example of exercise being something that was like a performance and a spectacle. And one of the things that I say at the, at the uh, I don't know, in that first part is that like that whole generation of generations of people who came before about 1950s, 60s, they were a group of people who never had that feeling. I think a lot of us often feel, which is like, oh, I should work out or I got to get to the gym. That wasn't a cultural pressure that existed. So um, I could have started earlier. There were definitely people like Catherine Beecher in the 1840s who were talking about exercise. And obviously the idea of moving your body for health is something that has existed for a long time. But But in terms of a kind of more deliberate approach, I wanted to start with those strong men in the late 19th, early 20th century, because they really were like boosters in a way that we didn't have before. Did people understand that if you ran, the more you, I I guess the question is, do they understand the science behind it? Even if they didn't get cells yet, do they understand that the more you would run, the more you could run, the more you can, the more you lifted, the more you could lift and that there was a benefit to doing that? Oh, God, no. I mean, most people did not. There was not a a body of scientific research for many years to come. I mean, it's not until 1968 that this book, uh, Aerobics, is written by this military physician, Kenneth Cooper. And that basically introduces the idea of cardio, which is mind boggling because doctors had said and many continue to say for years that, oh, if you run or tax your heart too much, you're going to (laughs) die. Like that's dangerous. You shouldn't get out of breath in that way. Um, So that didn't, uh, that body of research didn't exist. And honestly, even in the 1980s, I interviewed quite a few people who were at the top of the field there. And they said like, you know, this is kind of a wild west for us. Like we would go and sort of make it up as we went along. And that's not, I want to be very clear. That's not because no science existed, but the kind of fitness communities, like the commercial fitness community and the university scientific research and physical education communities were not really in conversation with with one another. There was this industry that developed really rather separately than the kind of academic and educational um, world of fitness. Mm. just so, you, just to remind our listeners, the 1893 Chicago World's Fair is super famous because it was much better to be probably a young man than a young woman at that World's Fair because mm-hmm. someone there was a serial killer there who. Um, went around killing people. Um, And there's a great book written about that. But for whatever reason, a lot was happening in 1893 in Chicago and the cultural imprint of that has been long lasting. Oh, yeah. Um, The Chicago World's Fair. I mean, there have been books written just about the fair. It was this the World's Fairs at at that time was a place that was kind of like this display of modernity and like what man can do. Like that was the same World's Fair where the first Ferris wheel was debuted. Mm -hmm. And there were just millions of people who came through to kind of marvel at um, man-made creation. So, yeah, I think that that's really important. And it also was a place that, you know, Chicago was going through a really rough time at that period. Like there was a lot of socioeconomic inequality. Um, it was, it was difficult. And that was like supposed to be this unifying feel good kind of collective experience, but except, you know, serial killer. Yeah. Devil in the White City is, yeah. Devil in the White City is the book, which is a really haunting book. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I read it years ago, but I still remember reading it because it was, uh, anyway, uh, who is Vincent Gonzalez? You open the story with Vincent Gonzalez and, um, uh, Uh, you mentioned that exercise has kind of exposed this class inequality and race inequality in this country. Um, So tell us the story of Vincent Gonzalez. And then what does his story say about the contemporary view Americans have towards not just exercising, but the right to exercise? 
Yeah. So Vincent Gonzalez is a key, a key figure in my introduction because he was part of this kind of like brief internet story that went viral for a minute, but really caught my eye. And so he's this kid who was caught sneaking into a gym franchise in outside of Chicago. There's a lot of Chicago, I guess, in today's interview. Um, uh, he got caught sneaking into this gym franchise and the guy behind the desk was like, you can't do this. And he's like, oh, I just want to go play basketball and lift weight with my friends. And so they call the cops. And so the cops come and you can imagine that going a very you know negative way. But the cop looked at him and saw that this kid really wanted to exercise so badly. And instead of booking him or you know throwing him out, he ends up taking out his wallet and asking how much does an annual membership cost? And he buys him an annual membership. And then uh, this like goes sort of viral and the mom is interviewed and she's like, this is so amazing. Now he can focus on his studies and he can go to this gym. But and, the, little, you know, I, I'm sorry, the little claim there is that he's stealing exercise. Yes, he's stealing exercise. I mean, he's definitely, he was he was stealing exercise. It's a private club and he's going in, um, he's trying to sneak in to do it. So that would have been the crime, right? But this cop, his heart is warmed that this kid is doing this and he ends up paying for the um, membership and the like. The club executives or think this is so heartwarming, et cetera. It is heartwarming. I'd rather see a story go that way than him be like brutalized by a police officer or thrown out. But the thing that struck me, the there are many things that struck me about that, but that, you know, this kid had to sneak in to a commercial gym to have access to a basketball court and to weights to lift. Um, uh, that in itself to me speaks to, you know, the fact that why doesn't he have access to a community center? Why doesn't his school have these facilities? Like, why is he having to pay for that? And why is he having to pay for that in particular when we clearly live in a society, as that story shows, where we see exercise as this positive thing? Like if he'd been trying to steal a pair of sneakers, it would not have gone that way. Or like food, maybe even it wouldn't have gone that way. But it's this heartwarming thing of this kid wants to work out so badly. Look how hard he's working to do it. And even with that, there was no kind of questioning of like, what is this system where people have to sneak exercise, have to steal exercise and be rely on the good graces of some executive or some cop that day. And to me, that was just such um, an important moment in or an important anecdote in crystallizing some of the themes which really animate this book. One crazy stat in this book is that 80% of Americans live in what's called a fitness desert. Now, we know about food deserts when that's fresh food is not available in certain neighborhoods. Um, but 80% of Americans live in a fitness desert. Um, mm -hmm. Exercise is everywhere, yet America is notoriously, for the lack of a better term, overweight. How did that happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a fitness desert just means that you don't you don't live. What was it within half a mile of a yeah, green I space? So, yeah. I have the stat. Read the book for the exact yeah, yeah, statistic. Yeah, right. But it's basically meant to show that this huge percentage of Americans don't have access to kind of green spaces or recreational spaces, and we don't talk about that in the same way that we talk about um, food deserts. Although I think that we should. And so, how did that happen? Well, if you think about it, we have this huge commercial fitness industry. So there is this appetite for exercise, but we don't have a policy environment that has kept up, right? And so there is all of this energy in um, creating kind of private spaces like the franchise where Gonzalez went into, honestly, at many price points, like there, it's not just an elite thing, but yeah. the presumption is you have to pay to participate. Whereas you don't have these free places that not only would give people access to exercise, but I think they're presence would encourage people to exercise. Like when I think about some communities that I've been in where there's one park I'm thinking of in a town in Long Island where it's pretty basic, but there is a skate park, a kind of like rink thing that you could use for hockey. There's not ice. It's like roller hockey. There's a tennis court. There's a playground for little kids. And there's some vending machines and decent bathrooms and a track around all of this. And these ladies who watch, like they're not babysitters, but they kind of make sure that everything's okay. It's like 
life-changing to have that in mm-hmm. your community. Everybody can go. And most Americans, as, as I say, and you reminded me, um, just don't have access to that. And so I think that's something we really need to bring attention to in terms of redressing the fact that so many people are, um, you know, I don't want to say out of shape necessarily, but not getting even the recommended minimum of exercise. And the last thing I'll say about that, or the, you know, the last thing I'll say right now is yeah. In terms of weight, I mean, I think we're right to think that weight is one indication of kind of exercise inequality. But, you know, of course, exercise is not the only factor there. And we can't separate um, our fixation on exercise and issues with access to exercise from changes in the food system in the last like 20 something years. I mean, there's this one stat in my book that people quote a lot, which is that in the middle of the 1980s, Domino's Pizza was the most popular franchise in America. And then Jazzercise was number two. And I think that those things kind of make sense, actually. They go together that as we have food systems, which are, you know, providing cheaper, more caloric food in a way that's affordable to most people. We have all of these health-related issues, weight and otherwise. And so the fitness industry, even though exercise can't, like you can't out-exercise a bad diet, right? Um, or a, or a, you know, an unhealthy diet, the exercise industry kind of jumps in and it's this I think pretty vicious cycle of like, oh, eat this, but then buy this product to work it off. Like we need a better solution. Yeah. So I actually do have a question about that. Um, It kind of occurred to me as I was reading this, what would our bodies look like without the exercise industry? So the, the subset of that question is, would a lack of an industry though mean that we would have a different relationship with unhealthy food that we couldn't just say, hey, we're going to work this off? And do these industries accidentally support each other, the gym industry and the fatty food industry, like in this sort of tug of of war, or would we just be even more fat as a society? Oh, it's so, you know, historians notoriously avoid what we call the counterfactual case of like, what <laughs> would have happened if this? No, that's okay. It's you're a good, good interviewer. Um, if we didn't have this industry, I mean, it's really hard to know. One could imagine that if we didn't have this industry, the appetite for movement and for kind of health promoting activities that are born out now with a big body of science that we have, that's not going to go away. So maybe we wouldn't have those fitness deserts. Maybe we'd have green spaces and parks and things that, you know, pools that are freely accessible. Maybe that would happen. And that's a kind of happier um, version of that. But um, I don't know, would we be more out of shape we, I guess we probably would, because if you think it's even though most even people who buy the majority of even people who buy gym memberships, most of them tend not to use them. It's still a booming industry. People are buying these things and participating in them. And even though they tend to occupy a kind of higher class status, um, I do think some people are getting healthier through all of these um, options. So I don't know. It's hard to kind of imagine. I don't know if that's an unsatisfying answer. No, that's good. That's good. Uh, 1950s Santa Monica. You say that's where the idea came that it shouldn't just be for the professionals, I guess. So maybe before we answer that, you need to just explain how things took off from 1893 and then go to this turning point in Santa Monica. Yeah. So after 1893, I mean, another reason I chose that jumping off point is because you have these strong men and women who are really circus acts and performers, but a lot of them become entrepreneurs too. And so it's this interesting thing where they start kind of selling their methods, right? And a lot of them are going to, most of them are going to men like in the back of comic books and stuff. Like a lot of your listeners have probably heard of Charles Atlas and the 97 pound weakling and those ads where, you know, there's like this skinny guy walking with his girlfriend friend on the beach and this big burly dude kicks sand in his face and he wants to protect his girlfriend and um he can't because he's not jacked and and so um sorry i just dropped the mic let's see mic drop <laughs> and mic, so mic, mic yeah and so he um and so like the the conceit is well you buy my training method and you'll be strong and you can like support your girl you can you know be with your woman etc and like ward off these pursuing pursuers. Um, So you have those kind of products that are coming up through that period. But of course, you also have two world wars and the depression that happened in that period. So it's kind of like a 
start and stop in that moment. Some really important things happen. I mean, you have in the depression, for example, um, when FDR comes in and he starts the Civilian Conservation Corps, it's remarkable um, to see the way that he says, all right, well, all you young men, like come work, you know, in the forest and doing public works in order to make America a better place. And I was blown away by the research of this other great historian, Rachel Louise Moran, who wrote all about this, a whole book about it. The play was, you're so skinny and scrawny, come work for America, put some muscles on those bones. And like literally the promotional posters look like a Chippendales ad. I mean, it really is remarkable that that was part of it. And like some of them, they show um, like the boy comes home and he, the dad's like, how was the CCC son working for America? Wow, you put on some weight. Like that's really kind of part of it. So you start to see this kind of sanctification of working out and getting a muscular body as part of a civic act. Anyway, so that's happening. By 1929, already, though, you have PE required in all states. That's a pretty big deal. It gets cut back a lot during the Depression. So like I said, there's this kind of start and stop. In World War II, there's an interest. Oh, and I should say in this period, too, women are a harder sell for sports and rigorous athletics, but they're an easier sell for beauty systems and technologies. So like, whereas men, one of the things that like really prevents a lot of men from going to the gym or working out or admitting that they want to work out is that it's considered unmanly to care about your appearance so much. So I read a lot about that. About well, I like, wish that was still true, right? You <laughs> don't have to work out at all, you know? Yeah. Just well, kidding. one of the stories that I tell is like straight men like have gotten folded into something that was only the worry of like women and gay men, which is like, you got to have a six pack. You got to look a particular way. But anyway, in that period, period, straight men like were not supposed to want to work out. Women, however, they weren't supposed to want to do sports or anything rigorous, but they were encouraged to do sort of light body work in order to work on their physique. And so talk a lot about these reducing salons and spas where like women would go, they'd say, relax and luxurious comfort. And they'd like lie in these things that would shake them. And they'd be like, no sweating at all. But I think that's an important <laughs> moment when the idea of women working on their bodies and taking the time to do it takes shape. Anyway, 1940s, you know, first I, there you have a kind of moment when a lot of women are kind of seeing that they can be strong in ways they hadn't anticipated through their work on the home front. Like we all know Rosie the Riveter with like her nice bicep curl on uh, that famous picture, um, which I think symbolizes the kind of change in the moment. And then sort of more concretely, you know, a lot of men are doing military training and they're using weights when they're away. And when they come home, that's become a little bit part of their um, of their routine. So you start to see some people lifting weights at home. Now you talked, we talked about Santa Monica and Muscle Beach in this very same period in the 1930s in the depression, um, one of a works progress administration project was to start a kid's playground on Santa Monica beach. And so there was this playground instructor who would go play with kids, but it wasn't just kids who showed up there. There were these acrobats and weightlifting enthusiasts who showed up there and were doing more acrobatic stuff than we would associate with muscle beach today, but they became an attraction really fast. And like people by the 19, you know, kind of late 1940s are writing letters, dear muscle beach, USA. They're visiting, they're watching them. It's very much like the um, the people I talked about at the beginning, Sandow, et cetera, that they're on stage. But I think notably, the stage is much lower. They're constantly pulling people up on stage with them. It's kind of a more diffuse like performance environment, multiple people on stage at once. And one of the things you see by the 40s, there are ads all around the Muscle Beach area. They're like physical conditioning, come train here. So you start to see that people aren't just going to watch these people. They are, but there's a little bit of the like, oh, I maybe could do that too, or I maybe should do that too. So that's kind of the way that trajectory happens in those really important, but kind of start and stop years. How did exercise then become a part of national politics and like the work of government? And I went to New York City public school in the 80s and 90s. Um, and I remember there being signs around like sign up for the president's thing i don't remember what it was fitness called. challenge yeah fitness cha sign up for the president's fitness challenge and like you know your governor wants you to be fit and the mayor had like a fitness festival and stuff how, how did the government and and start to say this is something we have to grab onto? 
Yeah. Um, so that is really a product of the post-World War II period. And there's this really interesting thing that happens where, you know, the kind of common story of that time is this is about suburbs and television and cars and frozen food and labor-saving devices like washing machines, cake mix, all of that. Those are all signs of American prosperity, right? But some very canny observers or participants, particularly this woman, Bonnie Pruden, who lived in White Plains, New York. I had her name written down, yeah. Yes, I'm glad we're on the same page. Yeah. So she says, well, wait a minute. This is supposed to be what makes American the American good life good. But I see that all of these kids are like deconditioned. They're out of shape. They're watching television rather than riding bikes. Like what's going on? And she's really upset by this. So she starts, as many activists do, with her own kids. And she built, she makes an exercise class at her daughter's school. It expands. She starts this physical institute. I mean, she's someone who's not a household name, really, but she was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And the reason she was on the cover of Sports Illustrated is because she's the one who brought this issue to the White House. And she goes to the White, she gets through some connections with some athletes and some doctors, Gets, get, goes to the White House and catches the attention of President Eisenhower in the 1950s. And they are like, this is a national security issue. Like, we have these kids who are not going to be fit to fight and you got to do something about it. That, of course, in the Cold War, catches the attention of the White House. And it's actually Nixon, who is the first um, secretary or head of the Presidential Council on Youth Fitness. And so that's kind of like this first key moment. Then JFK kind of takes it to the next level. And one of the things that's really interesting about JFK is, so he drops the youth part of the council's name. It becomes the Presidential Council on Fitness. So it's about much more than just kids. He also makes it about much more than military preparedness. So with Eisenhower, like all of their meetings were at like West Point. Um, and there's like, you know, girls get in there too, but it's not really for girls. It's more for boys. Kennedy really expands this to be, yes, about national security. Like he has this whole thing, the soft American is a national security threat, he says. But it's also kind of lifestyle. Like I kind of think of him as like a early influencer, fitness influencer. Mm. Like, you know, he's young. He actually struggled <laughs> tremendously with his health, but he's being photographed shirtless on the beach. He swam at Harvard. He's and going to golf. Palm Beach. Yeah. yeah, he's in Massachusetts in the Cape. All of that. And so he there's a uh, something I write about in significant detail, this 50 mile hike that he challenges his brother, Robert, to that, like, you should go, you know, walk 50 miles. I challenge you and other communities do that, like all over America. So this idea that fitness is kind of fun, not just this like military brutality, that's really important, too. And so he's a bit they're both big phys ed boosters. I should make very clear that they never they're never they're never the federal or local government. It's never really robustly funded the infrastructure for like amazing PE for everybody, but there was an attention to it and that this is important and you should like mobilize your community to do something about it. That was um, really unmatched and really unprecedented at that time. So that's kind of, I think, a really important early moment. One thing I'll say in case you don't get to it later, but I think is super interesting for people to think about is like you know, contemporary listeners will listen to that and probably hear echoes of the Obama era, rightfully so, but with Michelle Obama and Let's Move and absolutely on point. There's very similar messaging. What I think is so interesting is that in the period of Kennedy and Eisenhower, they are only really targeting white suburbanites and white affluent suburbanites who are suffering because they're too privileged, right? Privilege equals leisure and therefore you're getting soft. Even though kids of all backgrounds, and they said this is for all backgrounds, but it wasn't really if you look at the way like they framed the problem, um, they weren't looking at other really health-related issues around fitness and otherwise of poor kids, kids of color. By the time you get to the 2000s Obama era, Actually, almost all of the uh, you know messaging is focused on black and brown kids who are at higher risk for obesity. And I think that's really interesting to see the way fatness um, evolves in terms of who it's seen to affect most problematically. Mm. Um, there are all these activities. Um, the movie or the, I guess, TV show Mad Men, um, early on, you see women doing these like laying down bicycle maneuvers and like the modern folks, you know, myself included and my wife, we, you know, you start giggling and you go, what are they doing? Like, is that really exercise? But by the eighties, there's the aerobics, 
there's Ty Bo, there's the sliding back and forth infomercial, the Zumba, the Jazzercise. What did all of these fads, I guess, represent in our effort? It reminded me of the effort to get rich quick. Like you just have to slide enough and you're going to be rich. You're going to feel, you're oh. going to look good and feel good. Um, what does that all represent? All these activities that we were now participating in? Yeah. So there's a lot there. So I would say in terms of each individual one, they are less activities, which is a charitable term and more products, right? And so even though a lot of the things that you mentioned are all kind of forms of cardio and actually the benefit is not the benefit or the, yeah, the benefit, the physical activity is not all that different in terms of what it does for your body. It's just repackaged in different ways, right? This I couldn't stick with, you know, step aerobics, but typo is going to be the thing. So now I'm going <laughs> to buy this new VHS, right? <laughs> both, and I've done both and loved both, but both of those effectively have the kind of same health benefits. Right. Just right. new products. But I do think big picture in terms of what spawned all those things that you talk about that are definitely post Mad Men era, post reducing salon era, at least two things are super important there. Or let's say three. Well, I'll make, keep it to two. One is the publication of this book in 1968, Aerobics by Kenneth Cooper, the medical, the, the uh, military physician. The idea that cardio is something everybody should do, men, women, children, is pathbreaking because it expands the idea of what exercise is. Before that, people really thought about calisthenics and weightlifting. And this is totally different. It's more accessible in a lot of ways. You can go for a jog, a brisk walk. If you have access to a pool or a bike, you can do that. And you should do that. Everybody should do that. It wasn't total consensus. Like I mentioned, there were always like hater doctors who were like, no, you're going to die of a heart attack. Um, but there was this sense that actually this will help you avoid a heart attack. And there really was a lot of fear that men in particular were going to get heart attacks. Anyway, so that is a game changer. And that gives rise to literally everything that you're talking about. Jazzercise, Tybo, all of these cardio activities. We get that. The other thing, because most of those are really marketed to women, um, although men participated too, but the other thing which I think is really important is feminism and specifically Title IX, the um, measure that um, en enables equal access uh, across gender to sports. So feminism writ large in this period exists on so many fronts and so many of them are about bodily autonomy and about articulating women's strength and kind of reject rejecting ideas about women's frailty. So you have this feminist movement that's like, I deserve to be in my body and to like build my strength. I deserve to make the same amount of money as men and to spend it where I want. And so that kind of big picture lends itself really well to like, okay, well, then we're going to have gyms for you and we're going to have women's only exercise spaces. And then specifically Title IX, which was about sports, the women who were active in promoting those measures, like girls should be able to be on teams and try out, et cetera, that like specifically attacked a lot of this old fashioned science, which was like women are frail and their uteruses are going to fall out. And, you know, that's really dangerous. So there's that. But I also think there's a more interesting twist around Title IX, which is that Title IX, as I say, was about sports huge watershed. We should pay attention to it as like this watershed that it was. A lot of women, though, didn't necessarily want to go out for the team. There were a lot of enduring stereotypes. Honestly, some of them, some of them still with us today that like, I don't want to be a jock. That's kind of masculine. What if I get bulky? And so all of those fitness activities, they actually would never exist without, I think the title nine people and all of this feminist activity, but in many ways they are like a much, a very different kind of proposition for women where they're conventionally feminine in a lot of ways. This is group dance. All of them in that period market themselves to be about weight loss. They all talk about not bulking up. Um, it's a very, very different aesthetic from, um, you know, go out for the sports team. You can play like the boys or with the boys. And, you know, a lot of women were not attracted to the idea of being a jock, but they were attracted to the idea of being conventionally attractive, being slim, um, et cetera. And I think that that is really important because it was revolutionary. Those things existed, but some of what they were um, offering, or at least the way they framed it was actually kind of traditional. So speaking of revolutionary, 
America and the world has just gone through a revolution in the way we communicate with one another. And I'm thinking of Instagram, but really, you know, the way, I mean, basically everything humanity knows is in the phone in your pocket, which is a crazy thing to think about. Um, but it also means that every picture ever taken, or at least ones taken in the last 25 years are in your pocket. Um, what has been the digital impact and the impact of all of those pictures on our exercise culture? Oh, such a good question. Um, I think a big impact, not just of, well, a big impact of te the technological evolution is at least twofold. One is the rise of kind of remote exercise experiences. And I don't just talk about that with the internet. I'm talking about Jack LaLanne and television in the 1950s. I'm talking about VHS in the 1980s, which was game changing in terms of exercise. But most recently, which I think you're referring to, I'm talking about the proliferation of everything from free YouTube workouts online to something, a segment that boomed in the pandemic of Peloton and all of this high-end connected fitness. That is enormous because people have access to just such a wide range of exercise activities through their phone or through their computer. And I think that one aspect of that, there are a lot of really positive aspects of that, most of them around accessibility and accessibility to different programs. But I also think kind of visibility of different body types too. I mean, one thing that I think has been positive about the realm of like internet media is that you know, if you look at who's headlining fitness videos in the 1980s when you needed like a decent budget to make fitness videos and like not everybody could do it, they all kind of look alike. They're like skinny white girls and who look a very particular way. That is not really the case anymore. So I think that that is super positive. A negative aspect of it, though, I think is a real issue with expertise that because everybody and anybody can start a fitness YouTube channel, that's lovely for taking down some barriers to entry. But it means that if you have good lighting and nice abs and like a compelling way to speak, like, you can just dispense advice um, with no consequences. And so I think that's something we've really got to look out for. But there are, but, but, but people now work out and take a picture of themselves working out and that is making a statement. So mm -hmm. what is the history of that statement they're making? Yes. So that's the second thing that I wanted to attend to. Thanks for bringing me back to it. So for basically ever, <laughs> I would say, well into the social, like into the social media era. So like, you know, early 2000s, Instagram launched in 2010, even as fitness became more popular, it was mostly a behind the scenes kind of activity. You exercised in order to like look hot in your dress, right? And then like you come would take out on the stage. Picture. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't something that you would really do itself as a performance. Now, even in the kind of, you know, fairly elite spaces that did exist for exercise in the 1980s and, and 90s, like, you know, I talk about Molly Fox's studio and I talk about the Vertical Club and these places where like Madonna would go. One the small studios were not luxurious spaces at all. So they weren't the kind of place where even if you had a camera, you'd probably be taking pictures and sharing them. But even the luxurious ones, like these were private spaces where people went and maybe they'd perform for each other there. They certainly would. Some of them were more like singles clubs than anything else. But it wasn't this like outward performance to the world. You don't want to admit to the hard work now the hard work is like the show itself. Part of the performance. Yeah. And I say that there's a big change that happened there um, right around the time that Instagram launches. You know, it's two years after the financial crisis. And what I think is a really interesting and important point there is that with Instagram, there's this like pressure to perform, right? And to share. And also like we've had reality TV at that point for like over a decade. And this notion that celebrities should be kind of 360 transparent and we can live like celebrities too. That's all really relevant. Then the financial crisis happens. And to people who are like remotely self-aware, it's not really socially acceptable or okay to be sharing um, examples of like real luxurious living. Like look at this $10,000 handbag or even this $20 cocktail or whatever. And so what I think happens is exercise becomes like a really 
kind of compelling thing that you can share to, to, um, show that you are yes, kind of fancy because there's this new thing called boutique fitness where you can pay a dollar a minute for class and they're hundred dollar yoga pants and all the things you talked about with your running example, <laughs> you can show that, but it's not as obnoxious as some of like these more overtly indulgent things, because one, the price point on a like per item basis is lower than like a car or a handbag. But much more importantly, fitness in our culture is about the virtuous pursuit of health, right? I'm not just like lying here on a yacht. I'm working and I'm working for health. And so spending, you know, this amount of money is okay. And I think that that is just all, that's like a perfect storm in the kind of like late aughts, early 2010s that brings us to that moment that you're talking about where, you know, sharing images of yourself exercising, which I do all the time <laughs> is kind of a socially acceptable form of conspicuous consumption. All right. So I am, I've been going back and forth through this whole interview on whether I'm going to ask this question and I don't, do want, to, I don't want you to laugh, but I, I decided I'm going to do it because I think, I think we're there. Um, uh, I've noticed that there is a divide generationally in locker rooms over over how much you should be wearing or not wearing in there fellows of my generation would would never go around naked in the gym locker room why are generations before us willing to do so and what does that say about the history of this exercise culture so interesting. One thing I will point out is that, you know, semi-nude or nude, um, I don't know, working out, but definitely locker room behavior was very common in gay male gyms. And there's a lot of that. And I talk about that with a particular gym in Houston that I chronicle in the 1980s. And one thing that was really interesting is that the management of that gym makes a big point of saying like, there's no like erotic activity here, but they have this nude locker room. And so- in yeah. Yeah, but don't worry, like, because they're really on this like respectability line where they're trying to show like, this is like fitness for health and we're virtuous. We're not like these lascivious gay men, um, you know, who are here mostly to like partake in each other's bodies. So like, let's put that out there. But in terms of generations and comfort, comfort with nudity, I now can't even remember if I put it in the book or not, but there was a really interesting study a few years ago, where it was maybe an interview with an architect who designs locker rooms for gyms. And they were saying that the younger generations today, like younger than you and me, want like total secrecy or total privacy. Like they're very uncomfortable. That's with what like I want. That's what yeah. I want. Yeah. <laughs> with showing their bodies at all. And so there was some analysis in the piece. I think it was in the New York Times. And they were talking about the fact that actually social media, with all of these um, like airbrushed, like quote unquote, perfect looking bodies, actually makes people, has made this generation so uncomfortable with showing themselves that they don't walk around naked. And I think that that is really, really relevant. And one of the things that I write about in the book, um, I quote Gloria Steinem, who wrote this amazing essay in the early 1980s. It's actually called like In Praise of Women's Bodies. And she talks about the locker room as a rare place where you see, where naked women see each other that where naked women see each other and where naked women's bodies are kind of available to be seen, not for the male gaze and not for objectification. And it, I, it was funny when I read that for research, because it really resonated with something um, a woman I know had told me where she said, I'm going to bring my daughter to a women's locker room because I want her to see C-section scars and cellulite and all of these things that you would never see in a magazine. And so to me, that's super interesting because when we think about the gym, we often think about the opposite. Like, the parade of so-called perfect fit bodies, but actually the locker room can offer, um, you know, something different. The, the other classic question <laughs> when it comes to gym stuff is what gym stuff do you do? So I, I would ask what gym stuff do you do? And are, are, you know, tell us about the classes that you're leading and where you kind of find your place in the history of, of, uh, exercise. 
Yes. Well, I probably shouldn't use this word given our most recent topic, but I'm kind of like a promiscuous exerciser, (laughs) not in terms of my longer room behavior, but I just love to like try everything. And so not that I'm a dilettante, like the things that I really love. So there's this class that I took and um, have taught for years called Intensati. And that's kind of like a Taibo yoga aerobics class with the the, um, really distinct thing that we um, speak affirmations while we're exercising. So you're like, I am strong while you're punching. And it's really amazing when you have a room full of people doing it. So I teach that now and again. Right now, I don't have classes on the calendar, but I just did a series at the end of the year and I'll probably add some more in the spring. Um, I really love lifting, like lifting heavy. Um, And for me, that is such like you know, I'm like a pretty sort of naturally muscular person. And I often felt that in a lot of gyms that cater to women, like my sort of natural muscularity was like something to overcome, like, oh, we can slim you down or lean you out or whatever. And, you know, and whereas when I go to like a squat rack or deadlift, I'm like, oh my God, I'm like made for this. <laughs> so um, that's something that I really enjoy. Um, I've run a few marathons. Unfortunately, I had these problems with my feet. So I just signed up for a half marathon and I'm excited oh. to to hopefully be able to do that. Um, and I'm working on my handstand. My 2022 goal was a pull-up and I got it. And now I'm working on getting a handstand. So I like to do a lot of things, but I'd say my most fun thing is definitely a dance cardio class. Like I just love it. There's a place here in New York, actually it's national called 305 Fitness. And it's just, it's just fun. Yeah. Like it's just fun. <laughs> You're working out seven days a week. Ah, uh, no, probably wow. like five or six, ideally seven with like one day being like yoga, but I'm just, I, I mean, I don't want to say I'm too busy cause you can always make time, but I often choose like moments for other things. <laughs> uh, dare I ask, have you thought of a next project yet? Do you think it'll be fitness related or do you think it'll go in another direction? Yeah, great question. Um, So I definitely want to write another book, but now having written two books and knowing how long they take to write them the way I want to take them, I'm kind of pressing a little bit pause on that. Although my the next book I want to write is um, I want to co-author this with my friend and collaborator, Neil J. Young. And we're thinking about writing A New History of the Hamptons, um, which I think would be like uh, just really interesting for a lot of reasons. So that we're kind of both working on. He's finishing another great book right now. I'm right now working on a documentary, a feature documentary that is not yet greenlit, but it takes up a lot of these themes. I'd be executive producing that. Um, and so I hope that that gets greenlit. And um, yeah, that would be really fun. I, I'm into like my favorite themes, but doing them in new media. And I love collaboration. And mm. as a historian, you don't get to collaborate very much. So I'm like super excited about that. Awesome. Uh, that's why I love this podcast, because we all get to collaborate and Uh, teach history and learn history and try to spread it to the world. Um, Dr. Natalia Petrozella, the author of Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Check out the book. Check out her website, nataliapetrozella.com. She's on Twitter at Natalia Petrozella. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks.